you are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper. Hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. Yeah, so I'm happy to make this time and, and sit down with you. I think it's been, I don't know, maybe eight or ten years since we've actually kind of been face-to-face talking. Um, you know, my memory of you was at uh, different community events here in Vancouver uh, where you're speaking, sharing, facilitating, and, and in particular storytelling, and really appreciated just the, the presence and quality that you always brought to those pieces that you were sharing. And, and so, you know, as I'm doing this podcast, Conversations for Change, um, yeah, thinking about people that I, I, I know I'll have engaging and meaningful conversations with, and as I came out to Vancouver this time, you, you came to mind. So I reached out and, and happened that, that it all worked out. So really yeah. happy to to have you and to engage in this conversation that, that hopefully will be of value. And uh, we'd love for you to just introduce yourself and tell tell everyone a little bit about what you've been up to. And, and then we can take it from there. Thank you for having me. Yeah. A little bit about me and what I've been up to. Well, my name is Zamir Danji and uh, I'm a yoga teacher. And I'm also a facilitator in compassion inquiry and I am really a human being you know first and foremost uh, seeking to be a true human being and that's my that's that's sort of my mission in life and I was talking with someone today and uh, there was a um, discussion about what you know what does it mean to become a mature human being and I did rites of passage work for a number of years with an organization called Teen Journey and I uh, discovered over that time growing up is about becoming your own mother and your own father and uh, I, I feel like we're diving into some like care discussion or territory right away perfect like, no no there's really no care rules. about introducing too much about me <laughs> but fine. you know what does it mean to become your own mother and your own father you know and that these 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 two energies that move in our life in so many ways are you know what we see these two forms of love and so I feel a big part of my journey has been how do I become my own mother and my own father and how do I help other people find their own mother and their own father how do they come in connection with the energies and the love of the mother and father in in the universe you know and to find wholeness right and to realize wholeness so that's the work for me and the work that you know, I help to facilitate in others. And the things that I do are um, in, in relation to that. Right? There's so many ways in which that can take place and I have my contribution to it. Nice. I, I use that a lot actually, the, the dynamic of, of, I often talk about it as loving, loving parent. When, when we're having trouble with someone, when they're triggered, angry, difficult, um, what would a, a really amazing, loving parent be and do with them as, as a kind of intuitive reference point that I think we can all relate to um, and that there, there is a kind of a nurturing quality of that, that parent, that parenting, and then there's a kind of straightness quality to that parenting and, and we, we need some combination of those two, but not the same combination of those two in each moment and, and learning what those maybe quintessential parenting roles are uh, as, as a primary, not goal, but, but a primary 
um, orientation orientation and, and discovery yeah. in our lives like the, a part of our purpose here is to to deeply discover what what mother and what father really is not necessarily the people definitely not the people but but what the underlying you know, kind of quintessential nature of those pieces are for sure yeah so what, what have you discovered in that like I don't mind starting there in terms of what does it mean to to be your own mother and your own father and 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 what have you kind of found in that that exploration um, well the opening lines of uh, all the surahs in the Quran start with Bismillah Rahman Rahim and Bismillah means in the name of Allah in the name of God so, um, you know, one of the ways of understanding that is, you know, when you come to pray, you don't come to pray like from your own ego, right? You're coming to pray uh, in, 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 in the name of the spirit, you might say. But also, it, Bismillah is a common thing before you get into a car or before you, you know, might do um, some kind of undertaking. You do it with calling, calling this the presence or the protection of, of the divine. And then Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Ar-Rahman is the love of the mother, and that is compassion. Ar-Rahim is the love of the father, and that is mercy. And these are the two things that, 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 that God or the divine has given us in our life. You know, every child has a mother and father. There's no way around it. Although we're trying to find a way around it in some <laughs> ways now, right? Which is funny, but, you know, these are the two forms of love that we need in order to grow. Love is the universal force, you know, the binding agent of the cosmos, right? I mean, the mother and father energies, and we get that. And the, the, the motherly love is, is unconditional. It's compassionate, so no matter how far we go off, no matter where uh, we've traveled in our journey, how much wrong we've done, you know, the mother accepts and loves us unconditionally. The father is the one where y you're, you have to take a step you know, like they say, you have to take one step towards God so that God can take ten steps towards you, right? It's the one that's encouraging the child to, like, let go of the hand and walk on their own, right? And, you know, when they fall, okay, the mother's there to help hold them, but sometimes when they fall, it's like, okay, try and get up and keep walking again, right? I mean, the father love is encouraging you to take those steps on your own because if we cannot be self-reliant, self if we cannot be independent, we can't survive. And not only survive, but we can't truly really thrive. We can't grow into our ownness, right? And so that's part of the father's love. And so that love of the mother and love of the father is how do we find a balance of compassion and mercy? You know, how do we recognize those as forces in the cosmos and also find them as forces within ourselves? Because then we can find really, we can find self-reliance, right? And self-reliance doesn't have to mean that uh, we can't rely on others or that we don't need need others but we can um, find and source the core of the love that we're seeking the basis of it within our own being right can we do that right and then we can truly receive and give it openly without you know so many of the neurosis that is often attached with the giving and receiving of love and so how how would you say we do that i i i hear you i get it um for people listening maybe they are having a bit of trouble understanding what does it mean to to be like what's the difference between someone that's able to be that for themselves and someone who feels that they aren't you know like that there's there's definitely people in our world that are aren't even aware that they could play some kind of parenting role for themselves and then there's other people that are deeply living that so i'm just curious for you what you see as um Yeah, what's the access point 
to that to that shift or to that that way of being where you are taking care of yourself versus just life happening as you make your choices mm -hmm. well uh, I think the core word might be like responsibility you know how do we take responsibility for what happens in our lives and taking responsibility for what happens in our life is the basis of how we become authentic right like you know someone you meet someone who's really authentic and it's because they're being who they are right and by being who you really are you're taking responsibility for what you want what you need what you feel and what you aspire towards and if you don't get what you want in the way that you want it you don't then go into a role of being like a victim. You see people who are always blaming life and always complaining. And there's a feeling within that that it's a kind of inauthentic, actually. They're not truly being themselves because they're not recognizing their own role and their own agency in having what they want and creating what they want. And, you know, the I've understood this a lot through the work of Dr. Gabor Mate, that a lot of this goes back to our early childhood, you know, experience. and. Um, what might be called our early childhood trauma experiences and essentially the child not receiving that right love of the mother and love of the father which comes in the form of, a, of an empathetic abiding presence leads us to feel that we have to either um, avoid or manipulate life and situations in order to secure that love and to have those needs met Right? And as a result, we end up living in inauthentic ways. Right? And so there's so many ways in which that can play out in an individual's life. Mm. Uh, so you can't necessarily pinpoint that, you know, like, well, it will look like this for this person and look like that for that person. But when you come and sit across from someone and you start getting into a dialogue with them, uh, you begin to see that there are these deep underlying patterns right, that start in our early childhood experience that influence how we, we, how we meet our needs and how we show up in the world, whether we take responsibility or we end up being a victim. And that's sort of a, a benchmark for the amount of you know, work and understanding we've done on this in ourselves. Hmm. Where do you find, because um, I've done a bunch of work around uh, attachment. I worked with, with uh, at-risk kids a lot and at-risk youth with an attachment-centered youth care practice. So I definitely I can relate to what you're speaking about in terms of the relationship between childhood trauma, childhood experiences, and how our whole worldview takes shape, how our sense of self and, and sense of self-worth takes shape. Um, where, where is the responsibility, the, the locus of responsibility, especially through time? It's like when I look at a small child that grows up in an abusive environment, there's, there's not a lot of real responsibility there. The child has no little or no uh, influence on how that's unfolding. And then there, of course, is a point in which the child and or adolescent and or adult has agency. And, and so like, how do we, how do we find that, that fulcrum, that, that, that touch point where we go, okay, it wasn't my fault or it wasn't my responsibility, but now it is. You know, like that piece feels really important to me. So I'm curious with the work that you've done or kind of how you see that, what would you say to someone or if you're working with someone, educating someone, how do you, how do you deliver that information or how do you empower someone to, to, to make that shift, that switch? 
you mean when is the time that we may say that we're like responsible for our lives or our experience like when is that marker point yeah like, yeah how do we how do we discern what's our responsibility and what's not well i think it's when we want to be independent you know like there's a point in every teenager's life and but they want to be on their own like they want to be independent they want to pursue their own path they want to be themselves and so it's usually at that point that we start finding our our voice we start expressing what we what's what's true for us right often in the process of that we completely turn all of our needs for like approval and expectation to our peers and you know other things but i think that one when when we get to the point where we start wanting to be truly independent and you know I would say that, yeah, independence. When we want independence, then that's when we have to start taking responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people in adult bodies that are still working with teenage mindsets in the world, or right? So, so is that like, you know, I think that's generally uh, not a healthy barometer of the state of a society, right? If at the time when they were, you know, seeking independence, and that's where I think rites of passage or the right support in a culture would be. You would help them say, okay, now you want to leave your mother and father. What is the, how are we going to help you move through this, this, this work? How are you going to come to understand what your relationship with your mother and father has been? And how do you start to heal that within yourself and claim what, you know, the gifts and your wounds are and do that work? I mean, that would be a good time to do it, mm. right? We live in an uninitiated culture, one that's kind of disoriented to the you know core processes of life. So that could happen at any time for a person, right? I don't think there's a you know a right or wrong time nowadays in that sense. I mean, who knows when it'll happen? For like the, the you say uninitiated culture is that sort of the word. I think that's what you said. Um, that strikes me because uh, one of the things that I think about is that that the human system works. It, it knows what it's doing. Life is in, incredibly intelligent, interconnected, has its own wisdom and knowledge. And it all really helped us get to where we are. And we live in a world now where the, there's so little risk, you know, like, like real tangible day in day out risk to us in the way that maybe it was when we were in more evolutionary times. And I see that as an impact. It, it reminds me of like the absence of an initiation. It's like we live in a culture, in a world where there's a, there's a distinct absence of, of necessity. There's an absence of, of needing to show up and really be all here because so much is taken care of, care of for us. You mean like in terms of we're not so reliant on nature? Kind of yeah, well, we're not reliant on and we don't need to be on guard against like, you know, the risks of I know what I'm, I know I'm going to eat today. And I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, a lion, a tiger, a bear, a shark isn't going to eat me today. Um, I'm pretty sure that another human being isn't going to kill me today. And, and I think we, we come out of an evolutionary context where that wasn't so obvious. Where we, I had to wake up and go, where is my food coming from today? I had to wake up and, and figure out how I was going to make it to the next day and, you know, do all those things. I see that as... Uh, a strikingly different context from the one that our biological system evolved in. And I think it leaves us with, with significant gaps in, in sort of intuitively making sense of meaning and making sense of value. So, so the initiation piece to me is, it feels like 
Well, there's initiation into like a culture and then there's initiation into your own, your own individuality, right? Your own self, like your sovereignty, like your own body and mind. And that's more like, that's really yoga, right? Yoga is not particularly interested in having you be initiated into like a particular society. In fact, most yogis for a long time have always gone against the grain of society. They almost inevitably have to be rebels. And in order to do that rebellion, they've had to go against society, but then ultimately like against the grain of their own conditioning, right? Their own patterns. And anybody who's going against the grain of their own conditioning is, you know, a yogi of some kind, I feel, right? And in, you know, in India, there's not like, you know, here we have this orientalist view of a yogi being like someone with long hair and, you know, looking spiritual and wearing the garb and <laughs> Fuck, I kind of look like that right now. It's just funny to say that, but you know, it's uh, there's this Orientalist idea where, where, in fact, there's so many great minds across the whole spectrum of the Indian subcontinent of people who are yogis that you may never look at and say that person's a yogi. I mean, he'd be working an office job and he could still be a yogi. Mm. He doesn't have to be in the Himalayas or you know, be a yoga teacher, whatever, right? So, but that person is really doing whatever the deep inquiry, the deep inner work, right? He may be understanding a very specific branch of the cosmos, right? And he's like deeply focused in that. Um, and at the same, in the process of doing that, he, you know, comes to understand a whole different reality about himself that was never taught to him by his culture or society. And then there's like religion, which is the womb of, uh, you know, the individual coming into a culture. And then now we don't have religion as really a, a womb for most people. And most, I was born into a religion. I know what it's like to go to a place of worship, you know, regularly with my grandparents and learn how to say prayers and learn how to, you know, say mantras and um, to be in a community where you know, people pray together and there's a sense of identity of being part of this and there's certain values that are associated with being a member of this particular religion. I didn't have it strongly impressed upon me, you know, until about the age of seven. And there's some really beautiful things that came to me as a part of being within that. And uh, I deeply appreciated it, actually. Nowadays, there's certain things that I realize that having a exposed to a religious upbringing at an early age, you know, gave me some beautiful things. It also, because I left it later on, I didn't get sort of entangled in many of the ideologies, worldviews, beliefs that people of that religion adhere to because that's what they should. I didn't get as much of those shoulds, right? And, you know, previously the idea of a religion was that they would, you know, initiate people into a way of seeing in the world and a way of participating in their own society in a way that was aligned with certain principles of, you know, principles of nature, principles of the cosmos, and principles of really just being a virtuous human being, right? And they were given that framework. And I think that it's actually, to be honest, like not a bad thing to have, mm. you know, in the absence of anything like that, as we were talking earlier, like there's this huge moral relativism and not a sense of like, well, what, 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 what is the right path to follow? You know, how do I conduct myself in a way that's in alignment in what in the East we'd call the Dharma? You know, religion, the word for religion in India is Dharma. So without the clear Dharma, you, you, you end up going against the natural way. 
you go against the grain of you know the, the cosmic unfolding and that just creates suffering and confusion and there's a lot of that now because we don't have dharma in the culture and we don't have an initiation in participating in a culture of dharma and that's unfortunate you know it is yeah i, I think about for sure religion can provide that that kind of backbone and that framework of of of, of morality of, of of ethics of ways of being that are right so to speak and of course, we, we definitely know that religion can take that too far. It can become dogmatic, it can become rigid, it can become um, not about the individual being fully, fully responsible, fully aware, that, that we can lean too heavily on that kind of external representation of, of dharma or whatever you want to call it. I'm curious about, do we need that external framework? Can we find it within without it outside of ourselves? And, and if so, like what, where does it come from? You know, it, to me, it came from somewhere and it works for a reason. You know? I mean, religion comes from God or it comes, depends on the religion. I mean, if it's Taoism, it comes from nature. If it's Zen, it comes from, you know, you might say the Buddha but in the sense of Buddha is in terms of like the universal mind or the universal consciousness. But whatever you want to call it, it comes from a source, mm. right? And that's where I think that, you know, if you're a child, you need a mother and a father until you grow up and then you have a different relationship with yourself as a child of the universe. It's the same thing as any child you come in the world and you need some kind of structure from which you can like participate and evolve and grow in. And then, you know, you're kind of reborn again into, you know, higher relationship of your own autonomy and independence. But that's not the common for most people. I mean, there's the, the people who really attain to that degree of total, like, independent and authentic relation with the cosmos, right? And in a mystical and highly spiritual sense is the exception to the rule, right? And then most of the religions are based on... Um, you know, if we strive to be like the Buddha or like Krishna or Mahavira or any of these saints or sages, Nanak, Lao Tzu, you know, they are exceptions to the rule, right? And we can't just say like, that's not going to happen for most people. You need a context by which people participate in that, you know, that even if they didn't attain to the ultimate self-realization or the full actualization of their, you know, spiritual, intellectual, emotional potential, they're still working within like a, a good and healthy framework of being a human being participating in society because we all need to do our part in it so that everybody can be lifted up in the journey, right? It's like a viewpoint of life as a, as a, as a school, right? And we all have to co contribute and be responsible to making sure that the school grounds and the campuses and everything are well kept so that everybody can move through it. You know, if you don't pass a certain grade, you might stay there for a while, but you know, at least you have the opportunity to participate in a safe and like nurturing school environment so that when you're ready, like you can go there, right? Well, I feel like the, the earth school is not being very well tended. I don't know who the chancellors are, but like <laughs> it doesn't seem that they're, our modern capitalist corporate, you know, society and structure is nurturing that school. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people feel like they want to drop out and um, or are not held in that. And that's unfortunate. And you see it all around. I think that's very clear in the amount of disenchantment and distrust and that's so 
evident in this COVID pandemic more than ever before, right? I mean, I mean, people don't know what to trust and what to believe anymore, right? The, 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 the places and people and institutions that we felt for a long time were looking out for the well-being for the people are ones that a lot of people don't really, really trust and believe in. And that's a, a really clear sign of, of dysfunction in the basic underpinnings of the social, social ups in the society and the culture at large. I, I'm always interested, like, I agree. Um, it paints, you know, in, from some perspective, a bit of a bleak picture. And I'm always interested in, like, what now? Like, if that's the case, which I, I agree on many levels that's the case, what, what can we do? I don't think it's a lost cause. Um, and I think we're in a time of, of exceptional uncertainty. And so part, part of what the podcast is about is how do we take full advantage of when we're in a, a shared space together and we have an opportunity to really connect, to, to meet, to, to dialogue. Um, how do we make that as meaningful as possible? How do we, how do we fully feed the potential in that? Um, so I'm curious what you would say through your experience with yoga and, and the, the compassionate communication work. What do you feel like plants those seeds and, and waters that garden? In Buddhism, you have three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Buddha is the awakened consciousness. The Dharma is the teachings that arise from that consciousness. And the Sangha is the community that practice the way. And about 10 years ago, I heard these words that sent shivers up my spine. And they do every time I recall them. And it was by Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said, the future Buddha may not come in the form of an individual. The future Buddha may come in the form of a community, a community practicing loving kindness and mindful living. And this may be the most important thing for the future of our earth. And when I heard that, I felt inside of me, I give my life to that. Like that possibility is what inspires me. And if we can see others possibly as members of our Sangha and encourage to include them in that, then I feel we, we're lifting each other up. Right. And it's it's not easy to do because it's a competitive world. We, we, we have to create, um, I don't know if it's fully answering your question in your way, but there's two things. There's, there's structure and there's consciousness, right? And in all, a lot of revolutions, there's idealized structures right? that seem to be like this. If we could just operate on this structure, everything would be solved. But the consciousness to truly operate and participate in that structure is often not there, right? And then there's people who really like lift their consciousness and work a lot on consciousness and then they find that they actually don't have the ability to change the underlying structure so that they can participate in the heightened states of consciousness that they find themselves connecting to and experiencing, right? And they get kind of dragged back down into that competitive separatist sort of structure. So. We need to elevate structure and consciousness sort of together. There's sort of like the right and left leg, right? And I feel like that's what we need to be working towards. We need to be working on the level of structure and consciousness. And I, and I actually, from a hope standpoint, I see that happening. Like there's a tremendous uh, upswell of people who are seeking to upgrade structures and a tremendous upswell in people who are seeking to heal 
themselves and upgrade consciousness. And it's because it's the work of the time. It's not because it's mandated by any individual. It's because there's a, there's a, there's a need from like an evolutionary response that we are doing it, right? And so the degree to which we can organize and see that in each other and recognize it and support it and reflect it and celebrate it and communicate it and take action day by day and our gifts and our inspiration in that process and truly give, I think the key is giving. If we can give more in that, it's, it has to change. What, is that, what does that giving look like? I feel like I get what you're saying, but I'm just wondering about how you see from that expansion, shift, development of consciousness, and through the practical development of structure for, for society and community, you know, how do we give that more? Uh, so I created a company called Mystic Yogi, and I created this card deck, the Inner Path deck, as a way for people to, to learn the deeper dimensions of yoga because I saw that, you know, the mainstream conceptions of yoga are limited just to the body and yoga asana. And that's not what yoga is. It's preparing, you know, the vessel in some way to be able to sit and meditate and inquire through paths of devotion and service. And there's so much more to yoga, right? And um, that was part of my, like, creative offering. And I have a gift in using language and in telling stories and using art as a way and so that gift came forth and i and i applied it right and that application of that gift was um what felt true to me right and i followed that inspiration jesus said if you you know don't bring forth that which is within you it will destroy you and if you bring forth that which is within you it'll save you so we have to bring it out right and so i think that our giving is a lot connected to like giving of what our gifts are and what our inspirations are. But the challenge that I'm finding now is, you know, to what degree do can I give away what I have? You know, where I get caught into a mindset of, well, but I have to monetize it and I need to make a living off this and so on and so forth, right? So then we have to engage in the, the real life struggle, right, of how we are able to, you know, meet our needs in the world and still give of what we have because it's what's needed. Mm -hmm. But I think the trust step, right, that bismillah, that trust, that faith is that give because you see the need or give because it's asked. And the universe, the law of the universe is that it will return to you and you will receive. That's difficult to do as a person, right? But we, I don't think there's like an easier way out if we have to build it all over this sort of separate monetized existence right it's not going to work because it's not aligned to the law of giving it's not aligned to that law of spirit law of giving comes from uh, walter russell brilliant man he got hit seven times by lightning and he put out a whole new periodic table of elements and a brilliant artist and sculptor he's just a genius and he has this thing called the law of rhythmic balanced interchange and he says it's a law of giving where you know, one part of the cycle gives so that the other half may equally re-give so that the creative process can continue, right? And nature is a perfect example of that. That's what nature is. It's the law of giving manifest, and that's the law of the divine. Right? And so we, we just, whatever degree to which we can follow that law and give from our hearts, it's the medicine that the world needs, right? And that 
that's, I think we have to do it and we have to trust, right? If it was like so easy to like map it out and be like, oh, I'm secure and the da da da, I don't think it would be real, you know? I think we have to do, we have to give of ourselves. Yeah, yeah it makes me think of, um, I love the science of natural systems and complex systems. And, and one of the kind of emergent properties of complex systems is that they're more than the sum of their parts. Yes, and, and that's emergent. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what I love about that is that when you look at a natural system, everything is participating. Everything has, every organism has a kind of, a kind of self-interest, like it wants to proliferate, but it's also clearly giving back to the system, the whole. The whole of the ecosystem is, is given to by their participation. And that's for me where human beings have completely lost track. We've missed the mark. Is our giving is so much contained within a, a silo of, of self-orientation that it doesn't feed back into the system. And then so we're, we're creating societies that aren't able to be more than the sum of their parts. But we can. Like that shift is there. We can start to give in that way. And it costs us our, our sense of self, our sense of me and mine yeah which is a tough one it does it's the one that but it's also like... it's also what imprisons us totally and that's the yoga teaching and that's why i think yoga is so powerful true yoga helps us to overcome those limitations and if we all do our yoga and your yoga doesn't have to look like mine mm. and that's not however it was it was in the yoga tradition you know it was not there is no one size fits all you know you have to follow your own path right there's a i sort of have this diagram that I, I call the anatomy of religion and that the circle so there's a circle there's a line to the center and there's a dot in the center and the line outside is called um, you might call it the sangha or in Islam the sharia which is the law or the you know the community you know that practices and adheres to this particular way whatever way of life there's society and then there's a line and that line is the dharma or also the tariqa the practice Right? And then at the center is hakika, which is a truth. Yeah, most times we can't stay in the center very long because it's so hot, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, you get to that place of like truth, truth. You know, the people who stay in the center for a long times, those are the enlightened beings that religions arise from, right? Because they're just continuously staying in the center, right? It's just a burning, right? And uh, but when we go to the center, we connect to the truth, and 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 that is what we bring back to the circle and we transform the circle, right? And the problem with most religions is that they forgot the center that they're revolving around and nobody's actually going to the center. So then they're not actually reformatting the circle back to the truth of the moment, mm -hmm. right? And this, the community is not being replenished by those who are going to the truth. Yeah. And that path that we walk from the circle back to the center and back, that's our yoga path, right? Mm -hmm. We do it every day and in our interactions with the world and with the source, are what that interconnection is what we need to bring that bridge to chinese call it bridging heaven and earth that's our yoga we have to do it and people have to do it right and then that changes the world and it's not a question of if it ha it, it's the law it has to be that way right and that's where i think emergence like you said emergence kicks in right emergence is when there is a outcome that arises from a complex series of interactions that could not have been premeditated, right? That's why it's amazing when you see a flock of starlings moving together in perfect synchrony or a school or a flock of fish. Like, you know, no mathematician can truly map it all out because they realize that there is this 
subtle communication that's happening right between the minds of all those individual units and also with the field that they're participating in that's guiding it in this harmonious movement that's what that's what will happen right we're gonna we are emergence is a law so if we are tuned into that source and tuned into ourselves and we're acting and we're giving of ourselves our minds and hearts are connected it'll emerge mm -hmm. right but we have to trust in that emergence and that's exciting right from that perspective totally we can practice it in communities too contact dancing is a great example of it you know yeah yeah i, I was watching a ted talk at one point and, and it was about storytelling and the the speaker was talking about uh neural imaging of a storyteller and the audience yeah and they were essentially saying that when a storyteller really has an audience that all of the brain waves match up. Mm. That the, the way the nervous system and, and the, the neural connections are firing all becomes synchronized. And and I love like I get chills when I when I think about it, that that we as human beings can be that that synchronous. We we but and we need to give up our sovereign right to be a separate individual making our own choices separate from the whole. Yeah. I have a story for you. That's a yeah, I was going to say, like, then now I want to hear a story from you. Yeah, I just thought of it. I never thought of the story quite in this light, but mm -hmm. that's a beautiful thing about stories. But once there was a king, and uh, he had uh, built this lake, okay, and it hadn't been filled in yet because the lake was meant to be a home for these swans, and not just any swan, but the most beautiful swans in all of India from a place called Mansarovar in the Kashmiri region. And these swans were set to arrive the next day and the king was looking out over his lake bed and he thought to out loud, he said, wow, how amazing would it be if this lake wasn't filled with water but it was filled with milk? And his minister was there and he said, that's a brilliant idea, king. He says, well, how will we do it? He says, well, you're the king. You have a vast kingdom. Your subjects will listen to you. Set a decree that this evening everybody has to bring one pitcher of milk and pour it into the lake bed. If everybody does that, it'll be filled with lake and in the morning the swans will alive and they will come into a lake filled with milk. And the king said, this is very good. Go set the decree. So the whole kingdom was informed. Evening approaches, gets quite dark and everybody starts to take their pitcher and pour it into the lake. The king wakes up in the morning, excitedly walks out onto his balcony and looks out onto the lake bed. And lo and behold, it's filled not with milk, but with water. Why was it filled with water? Because every person had thought, if everybody else brings a pitcher of milk and I bring a pitcher of water, nobody will know the difference. But everybody had the same thought. So they filled the lake bed with water, right? For us, we have to put in the pitcher of milk, mm. right? We have to put in the pitcher of milk. And if we all put in the pitcher of milk, okay, well, some will put in water. But if enough of us put in the milk, then that's the richness that we're going to have, right? But if we're all secretly putting in that pitcher of water, thinking nobody's going to know and notice, that's what we're going to have, mm -hmm. right? And the swan is a beautiful symbol in Indian culture. Uh, a saint is called a paramahansa, and that means a great swan, right? Swan is a symbol of vivek or discernment. And a swan is, you know, a mythical bird, a mythical in the sense that it can separate milk from water. 
if the milkman has tried to cut your milk with water, the swan will be able to separate it. They can separate what is real from what is false, what is authentic from inauthentic, right? So the swan is a being that you want to give pure milk. Yeah. So we have to give that pure milk, right? We have to find the swan in ourselves that knows, is this really true? Is this real? Am, am I giving of myself? Am I being authentic? Is this my contribution to life? We can find that inner swan, which is much of what the yoga process is about. You know, we're doing important work. So often in the in the conversations that that I have with people, I invite them to consider and think about a particular conversation in their life that has changed them, where you you could kind of see that you were on a certain path, and because of this conversation, in some way. A new path was revealed, or, or you were set on a new path. So I'm, I'm curious if, if you can remember in your life, um, any interpersonal conversations that, that had that kind of impact on you, and maybe talk a little bit about it. Well, I might have to think for a moment mm. about that. Mm -hmm. An interpersonal conversation that shaped my path. Well, there is one that comes to mind. I don't know if it shaped my past for the better or not, but um, many years ago, after I graduated university, I wanted to do a master's degree. And it, there was a school called the Schumacher College. I created a, my own program in university called Spiritual Economics, and was largely inspired by the work of this man, E.F. Schumacher and he had uh, written a book called Small is Beautiful. He's kind of like a grandfather of the new economics movement and ecological, like a lot of the stuff we're seeing today in the new economy is, you know, the roots of it are largely in E.F. Schumacher. And he was um, an economist in, in Burma and he got exposed to Buddhist culture and he'd written this beautiful text called Small is Beautiful. And they created a college in his name in Southern England in Devon and they have a master's degree in holistic science. And that's where we, you know, we explore like emergence and all this cool science stuff. Like that was like the cutting edge, right? And Fritjof Capra and Vandana Shiva and all these people are teachers who go and teach there. And I was like, wow, I really want to study this. And I was kind of green eyed, maybe 23 or something at the time. I went to go visit this college. Oh no, not even, I think I was, yeah, not even 23. And I went to visit this college and I went to the lecture of a man who was giving a talk on the relationship between Rumi and Shams. But he was a professor, Arthur Zayank, and he, he specialized in the study of light. Uh, anyone who studies light deeply probably becomes a mystic, right? I mean, you probably have to, right? It's light, right? So he's studying light. And when, in the process, I guess he was very fond of Rumi and this particular relationship with Rumi and Shams. So he gave this talk. I was very interested in it. And afterwards, I found him in the cafeteria. And I was kind of burning with this question of like, you know, what do I do with my life? What's the right decision? And I, and I sat down with him and I think I asked him just that. Like there was not, there was, I pretty much cut to the chase. I was like, listen, I need some guidance and you seem wise. And you know, what do I do, right? And he said something to me. He said that life happens in seven-year cycles and to trust those seven-year cycles. And he said that, you know, from that cycle, from 21 to 28, it's actually a time where you should be exploring. 
explore everything. Whatever you're interested in, give it a shot. You know, allow yourself to be drawn by what you're truly interested in, right? And it's okay that if you decide to change your mind at some point, find what sparks and inspires you, what is, you know, really drawing you forth. And, and, and then by the time you're about 28, you should be choosing a very clear direction of what it is that you have learned, that you feel that you can really, you know, give to the world, right? And that struck me because I felt in that moment he was giving me permission to follow what I really wanted at the time, which was to, to keep studying and exploring but also indicated that you know that cycle will end and then you should you should be giving and becoming an apprentice serious apprentice in whatever it is is your chosen craft and i think that was good advice for me you know, i think it was good advice i think i might have waited a bit longer on the eight years the seven year cycle like maybe a couple of years I was coming into my Saturn's return and I think that was a bit kind of threw me for a loop because life was saying, pushing me, being like, yeah, you better put, you better choose now, right? You, this you, was when you were in your early 20s? In my, like around the age of 28 where he was okay. saying, it was like that seven year cycle. It happened to coincide with that for me in right. my astrological cycle. I'm actually, I know very little about astrology. Mm -hmm. It's not a big thing for me, but I yeah. do know that that is a pretty significant time and, and Saturn is a planet that's known to put the pressure right on on you know you gotta resolve certain things in yourself and you know what are you here for kind mm -hmm. of planet and so that happened for me but i thought that was a very impactful conversation definitely one that i remember shaping me mm -hmm. you you've talked about having a gift around expression communication and story what would you say helps or, or for you what um, what allows you to capture an individual or an audience with with articulation or with story um, if someone was aspiring to to teach or to speak or to be a storyteller like what what for you really makes the difference in that world well there's the moving of the mind and there's the moving of like the heart and the, and the heart. And um, the moving of the heart, you, you have to be connected to the people that you're talking to. And there has to be a sense of empathy. And for the most part, you can't be too scripted. Like you, you gotta speak to the moment and you gotta speak to the room and trust because you have to trust that their hearts are beating with you and that you're, what you have to share and say is from, because it's coming from that place in you is going to be received from that place in them and that's that's an, i think that works right to do that for the mind um you need to know your material like you gotta have thought deeply about something in order to inspire that same depth of contemplation and thought in another person right and i would encourage that for someone if you're going to be speaking on a subject have you thought about it like have you explored it have you contemplated it because you know to inspire and, 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 and ignite the intellect of another person you have to be pushing their mind beyond what the confines of what they've known or what they think they know right because everybody wants to grow and expand right? 
So if you can expand someone's mind because your own mind has been expanded, then that is going to connect to them. They're going to want to get in and learn more from you. So probably a combination of those two things are good. Mm. Lovely. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, it comes to that piece that I shared about like a storyteller when they're speaking, both the storyteller's mind and the audience's mind all sync up. And I think it's in a way it's by design. It's, we're meant to, we're meant to be able to do that. And, and there's an integrated capacity where, where I'm tuned into and have made room and have come to peace with, with stuff in my own heart, in my own emotional body, in my own mental space. And now the delivery is, it's like making good on what we all know deep down. And then people feel, in working with, with children and youth, there was this concept that I just loved so much where to help a child regulate, they need to feel felt by you. So if, if a child can't regulate on their own and you're going to help them co-regulate, you're going to kind of do it with them, you actually have to feel them and they in turn feel felt by you. And, and for me, being connected, storytelling, capturing an audience, it's all about that. It's like I'm, I'm deeply in touch with my own feeling and intuitively it connects me with others. That, that when we're deeply connected in our own experience, we're actually, it's a shared connection. Right. You can tune in together to that. Yeah. And it, it, whatever the content of the message or the story happens over top of that. It's like right. the, the, we, we tend to think of, of a story or the, or the message as like the words, but that's not, the message isn't really there. The message is in this way of being, this, this quality of experiencing. And then the, the story is sort of like the clothing, yes. sort of on top of yes. it. Yes, yes, that's beautifully said. Yeah, empathy is, you know, it's really empathy and seeking communion, like communion. You know, we want to commune. It's a root of community, I imagine. Yeah. So creating that communion in and yeah, I was thinking earlier as we were talking before here that silence might be one of the highest forms, if not the highest form of communication. Yeah. Like if you can share uh, in silence without words, that's when it feels like souls are speaking. And it's amazing when you experience that, how much can be communicated without words, how much is communicated through presence. And, and that's, that's remarkable, you know, when people can experience that with each other. Uh, I think that's where we come to an understanding that there is such a thing as a soul, mm. right? When we experience that. Yeah, I, well, when you're speaking, I just got this picture of, in a way, we all know that. Like if we've ever been with someone as they approach the end of their life, or we're in a, a poignant moment where we know this might be the last time we have together, that's what happens. It's like words get in the way. We're, we're, words just feel like, no, no, no. That's not what we're doing here. We're not, we're not going to fill this moment with content. Because in, in the poignancy of the moment, all the context of life is there. And, and you can see you don't need the content. So, yeah, I love that. Those moment, how telling those moments are for us. What they reveal. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, we develop the inner technologies and the community technologies that allow us to do that. Because there's a lot of bullshit in the world. 
in our minds, like inside and outside, like a lot of noise and a lot of distraction and, you know, darkness and it's, it's a lot, you know, I, I, and, and there's, it, it hurts to, you know, to feel that, like to see it in, in the degree to which it's happening. Suicides are higher now than ever before. Child suicides are skyrocketing. I mean, children the age of 12 and 13 want to kill themselves. I mean, this, you know, if we look at it hard, it's, it's disturbing, right? And, and that's why I think the need of this time, just as we're developing such a focus on like green technologies, uh, which is usually important, we need to develop the inner technologies. How can groups of people experience and be established in communion? How can they experience that form of communication and the healing that's involved in it? Inwardly, how do we access that, that state within ourselves so that it's kind of sustainable and we build that connection? It's a need for our time. It's no longer just a luxury for that spiritual hippie that goes off. I mean, it's a need for society. And more and more, the science and research is showing us that, you know, you cannot just put labels on things and give medicines to heal them for someone who's psychologically, you know, suffering. They need, they need social community healing work, right? And they need individual practices to help them do that. And you need the spaces for that to help people not fall into those, you know, patterns if they have a proclivity towards it, right? We need, this is like essential for our time, you know, it's really important. It's kind of the cutting edge, I think, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and to do that in a world that, that, you know, I really see that as the solutions there, the solutions to mental health challenges, the solutions to, you know, the majority of our societal issues, the solutions are actually incredibly simple. The solutions that really make the difference are incredibly simple. And the, the problems are incredibly complex. And our addiction is to complexity. Is we want to grab some super complex, sophisticated solution to try to address the sophisticated, complex problem. And that's not it. It's like, what I was thinking when you were speaking is that um, that, that ability to be in collective communion is so natural to us. Young children are doing it all the time. They are absolutely wide open and experiencing deep empathy in their movement with others. And mostly we get taught out of that. So for me, I just think about it is the cutting edge. And the solutions are, are so simple, we miss them. Yeah. They're not interesting enough. Yeah, and they cost free. too much. <laughs> they're free, but they, they cost us the gain of complexity. Right. They cut, yeah, the simple solution that really will cut through it all costs us the game we've been playing of distraction and complexity. Yeah, that's that's, well that's a challenge. That's well said. Yeah. I remember doing these rites of passage programs and they would be profound like by the end of 10 days you have these youth that came in that were disconnected and disenchanted and you know some of them even suicidal and 
by the end of it, they like love each other. Okay, and they're so stoked on life. And I remember after years of doing it with different people and different constellations of people, right, and, and different facilitators, asking myself, like, what is the magic here? Right? Like, there's this magic that's happening. And it was love. Like, if I was to reduce it to one word, is we created the conditions for love to show up for love to win the day, for love to thrive, right? And they, they, like you said, they're more prone to it. They took to it like a fish in water. Once you created the space where it was like, if there's permission for you to show up for each other all in a space of love and total acceptance, they're like, let's do it. This is what we're all about, you know? It just becomes their culture all of a sudden. And they take it and make it their own thing. It was remarkable, like far more than even us facilitators or adults were, right? And it was, it was amazing to see that. And it was also a group of people who were showing up in their gifts and being authentic and, you know, holding that, modeling it, you know, and being in nature and telling stories around the fire and being natural, you know. And like you said, it was so simple. I'd really love one a day. Hmm. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Well, my friend, I... I honestly, I feel like we could talk all day and, and I would like to, to do it again sometime. It feels like we're coming to some kind of completion here. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Say, I know you're, you're in transition right now, uh, moving to a new place and, and maybe starting some new things. So is there anything for the audience that if they want to find you or, or you want to share about what, what your vision is for life? Um, yeah, if you want to share that with us, that'd be cool. Well, I'd have to be succinct about it, and um, if people want to find me, they can look me up on Google just easily, like they would find anybody. I also have, like as I said, the Mystic Yogi as well, and, and that is where they could access some of the trainings and work I'm doing and through my website. Um, I also have been involved in working with my brother, Ramayan, uh, to really put forth a vision of what this balance of structure and consciousness is going to be looking like. I mean, my interest in spiritual economics has been long-standing and also in community development and in, in inner practices. And so we are looking at now synthesizing this work so that we can put forth a different way of economic interaction, different systems of agreement, and also educational platform to help bring this this gift to the world based on that law of giving right and you know I, I don't want to talk much about it but to give people the sense that you know we're working on it you we know, can do this we can do this yeah, yeah we awesome. can do this the mirror means uh, different things in different uh, cultures and I like it to I like it when they all get strung together and it means one who sings for peace with a song of his heart. Yeah, Zamir is. Yeah. So that's what I try and do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your work. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. You are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper.